You're listening to the Oh Yeah Dig It Podcast Show on Anchor FM and the Magic Squirrel Network. What's up, guys? It's Justin Gregory here with another episode of the Oh Yeah Dig It Podcast Show. And this is episode five. I'm actually kind of excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but it's a little disparaging because I had to change subject matter. Now, a while back, I did a poll for what episode episode five should be, um, and that was Micro Machines. Micro Machines was the winner. But due to schedule changes and conflicts, I had some special guests planned that didn't pan out. But as they say, the show must go on. So today I want to talk about something that while we watch movies and TV, is kind of secondary to the subject matter. And that topic is special effects. According to Merriam-Webster, special effects is defined as an image or sound that is created in television, radio, or movies to represent something real, such as, as an explosion or imaginary, such as a monster. So what is it about the movies or television, especially in the last 10 years, that has enticed us or inspired us so much that they become a strong attribute to our culture? I do believe it is special effects. And to be clear, special effects have been around for a long time. To really get a grasp on just how long, let's go back to 1879 in the Spanish province of Santa Santander. Um... From the book Special Effects, an oral history by Pascal Pinto, in 1879, the Altamira Cave was discovered near the village of Santiana del Mar in the Spanish province of Santander. With the beauty of the stone paintings and the striking depiction of the fauna that lived in the region some 17,000 years ago, it has been dubbed the Sistine Chapel of Paleolithic Art. Drawn in iron oxide, magnesium oxide, and charcoal, the bison, deer, horses, and boar cavort on the stone. Primitive tools were brilliantly employed to create the illusion of life and to prepare the magic ritual before the hunt. Using the relief of the cave wall to accentuate the drawing, the anonymous artist produced what may be the first special effect a galloping horse depicted with eight hooves instead of four. Even today, a visitor to Altamira is under the impression that the horse is running, like some animated character projected onto a screen. So it's easy to assume that special effects have pretty much existed since the dawn of time. Now, I'm not going to get into every detailed piece of history surrounding special effects, but if I am to be informative, I think a good starting point would be the birth of film. In 1895, two brothers, Augusta and Louis Lemaire, invented a single machine that had the functions of a camera, a printer, and a projector. The apparatus created animated images, recorded motion, and used a drive to move the film. The brothers called this machine a cinematographer. They had their first showing with the machine on December 28, 1895. This was the introduction to the entertainment industry as the brothers charged viewers one franc to watch a dozen one-minute strips among them, Sortie de l'usine Lumière et Lyon, workers leaving the Lumière factory. 
This endeavor grew from 33 attendants that first day to 2,500 viewers a day. Soon the brothers realized that must they must make more movies, essentially creating the precursor to YouTube. Not very long after, the first special effects studio was created by an aspiring magician named Georges Méliès. It was, in fact, an accident that Méliès discovered his first effect when his camera had jammed. He was taking shots of traffic, and when he had cut the destroyed part of the film, he continued to shoot. Upon projecting the film, he discovered that a bus had transformed into a hearse. The consequence of this became the effect of substitution. Mele then created a studio outfitted with a stage with theatrical mechanisms and a photography studio. Here, Mele also created scenery, trompe painted cutouts, and canvases that depicted pers- perspective and depth with paintings of staircases and buildings. With actors in place, the effect took off. So let's jump forward about 70 years. This is a pop culture show, and I intend to keep it that way. So I'm going to focus on special effects from the 70s to present. Let's go. So the 1970s brought us the age of the disaster movies, and with that, a new and transformative approach to special effects. In 1972, movie artists L.B. Abbott and A.D. Flowers created the pivotal scene of a cruise ship being capsized by a colossal wave in The Poseidon Adventure. To accomplish this feat, the two men constructed a replica of the Queen Mary, which measured 128 feet in length, 60 feet in width, and 30 feet in height. This set was then mounted on a platform that was set at a 30-degree angle. I think they call it a gimbal. Um... The floor and ceiling were interchangeable, and the erratic movement was created by tilting cameras. And this was just the first part of the scene. So in the second part of the scene, the floor and ceiling were switched, which lent the effect of the ship being inverted. There were quite a few electronically triggered explosives placed through the set, and high-pressure pumps that shot hundreds of thousands of gallons of water throughout the set. While the actors portrayed panic in the scene... This successful scene garnered Abbott and Flowers an Oscar for its ingenuity and mastery. Mastery? Is that a word? Corey Dawson, word check, please! Abbott and Flowers reunited in 1974 for The Towering Inferno. This project became a masterpiece in model scaling and pyrotechnical effects. A.D. Flowers teamed up with effects technician Fred Kramer to create the pyrotechnics for the film but it was Abbott who created the testing and models to pull it off, the climactic scene in the towering inferno. In testing, Abbott created a metal structure of 10 windows, 16 inches high, and behind each window was placed an 8-inch deep metal box. With each box, it was fitted with three pipes. The first pipe dispensed butane, the second dispensed acetylene, and the third pipe dispensed compressed air. Outfitted on the two gas pipes was a spark generator. When they were lit, it produced a blue flame with no smoke and an orange flame with black smoke between the two gases. Using the compressed air, Abbott could manipulate the gases to orchestrate a series of believable explosions. After his testing, Abbott constructed a gigantic model of the tower and some surrounding buildings. This tower was fitted with the gas pipes and thousands of bulbs. To get an ascending perspective of the tower, Abbott placed a mirror on the floor. 
Shots were then filmed at dusk so that the building details could be illuminated by the nightlights of San Francisco. He then took shots of all the surrounding urban landscape where he kept every cut so he could align them with the models. These cuts were then combined with shots chosen by John Gearman, the film's director. A final note regarding the towering inferno. In the film, Paul Newman is flying a helicopter around the city, then he lands on top of the tower. But in actuality, he didn't. That was done with a remote-controlled model helicopter. How this effect was achieved was by inserting the film's two skyscrapers into the image of, by way of traveling mat, stop-motion mats, that were put into the foreground as if it had passed in front of the two towers, the helicopter that is. Which leads me to my first analysis of a special effect technique known as matte painting. According to Rocketstock.com, a matte painting is often a painted glass pane that is used to show a landscape or a large set piece. Matte paintings are either filmed on set where they are framed to look like a physical set piece or they are combined with live footage and post-production. And they turn out badass. So the earliest use of matte painting is thought to be produced by the legendary filmmaker George Maillet. Here it comes again. He would paint a glass plane black, creating the matte. And how this worked in filming was when he would shoot the black matte, it kept light from reaching the camera. So as a portion of the film was not exposed to light, it left part of the frame empty. The next step had Maillet remind, excuse me, rewind the film and set up an opposite matte. When the original matte was removed, and blacking out the rest, the film would fill in the blanks. Marier utilized this technique in his film, Four Heads Are Better Than One. And I'm probably not pronouncing his name right, but it's French, and that's hard. Coming back to the 70s, the visual effects house Industrial Light and Magic used matte paintings to the film to, to set the stage um, for the film Star Wars. And one famous scene from the movie where the use of matte painting is used is Darth Vader's Imperial March. The scene is like, it's pretty epic. He's coming down like that gangway. And like in the distance, you see all those soldiers, but they were all painted. Um, also, ILM painted, did matte paintings for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as is the case with many special effects, matte paintings went digital. And one of the last hand-painted mats was in the 1997 movie Titanic. My heart will go on. But some interesting movies over the past five decades that utilize matte paintings are Ben-Hur from 1959, Mary Poppins, 1964, Earthquake, 1974, Ghostbusters 2 from 1989, the Neverending Story, 1984, Superman, 1978, and a classic going all the way back to 1939, The Wizard of Oz. Like I said before, nowadays the matte paintings are composited digitally into films like, well, basically everything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> but by the time the 80s came around, and it's my opinion that this is the decade with the most fascinating special effects. Filmgoers were under the awe of new effects like IntraVision, 3D imaging, and computerized morphing abilities. Um, in 1981, the IntraVision process consisted of a double front projection. 
one onto a giant screen and the other onto a smaller screen. Uh, by the way, this effect process was also invented by a magician named John Eppolito. Um, but as this was pr pr processed, it was a system of mats and counter mats, which made it accessible to adjust the parts of the frame behind which the actors could disappear. For example, uh, again from Special Effects by Pascal Pinto, uh, imagine a space station that has a door and a gangway. A gangway is a raised platform or walkway providing a passage. This would be photographed and developed as large-scale slides. Apolito then made a mat that would correspond to the part of the miniature scenery where the actor disappears. Now, using the double projection system, he could re-imprint the model over this mat. This would give the impression that the actor was emerging from one side of the wall to appear in the doorframe. Exit the miniature building and walk down the gangway. This was a very prominent special effect throughout the 80s, and it was uh, utilized in movies like Outland, which I think is the first movie it actually was utilized in, in 1981. Stand By Me in 1986, which I thought was cool. I'm going to assume it was probably the train track scene. Um, Rambo 3 in 1988. Driving Miss Daisy in 89. Dark Man in 1990. Army of Darkness in 92. And The Fugitive in 1993. As with everything else, the advent of digital compositing, uh, excuse me, with the advent of digital compositing, the intervision process became obsolete by the mid to late 90s. By 1982, we started seeing 3D-generated images on the big screen with the film Tron. This film starred Jeff Bridges, David Warner, and Bruce Boxleitner. The images were created by MAGI, Mathematics Applications Group Incorporated. They took the 2D shapes and the 2D shapes that we see in everyday objects and things, circles, squares, rectangles, triangles, and created 3D forms of them. So while it was revolutionary at the time, Looking back, it was really actually simplistic. Um, but for Tron, the creators had previously bought a medical imaging device that could record images in gray gradients on 35 millimeter film. They did this in various stages of gray, then colored them with filters. It was a very arduous task, but this is how they made the credits for the film. And while Industrial Light and Magic did a lot with 3D imaging throughout the 80s, it was actually the company Digital Productions who conceived the first 3D spaceships in film for the 1984 film, The Last Starfighter. These ships were computed by a Cray XMP computer. The next advance was from John Lasseter of Pixar fame, who was working for ILM at the time. He animated the first character in 3D for young Sherlock Holmes. The ILM studio also created the, morphe excuse me, the morphing effects that were first seen in Willow, from 1988, I think where uh, I think her name was Rosella or whatever turned from like the squirrel to like the princess to like the creatures and stuff. Uh, and the first modeling for water in 3D was on the Abyss in 1989. And then again, they kind of used that same technique with liquid metal in Terminator 2 in 91. Um, but Terminator 2 was also the first film where all of the special effects were done digitally. Um, it's important to note that some of the films that utilize 3D imaging and that began the full leap of digital composition of special effects are Jurassic Park, Judge Dredd, the first one, Hollow Man, Titanic, and The Mummy.
While we enjoy movies and take in all of the action and special effects, it is impossible to have many of these attributes come to fruition without the role of the storyboard artist. From Wikipedia, a storyboard artist creates storyboards for advertising agencies and film productions. A major name in the role of the storyboard artist is Sylvain Desprez. Desprez came to America from Paris, France as a foreign exchange student and got his first taste of filmmaking while working on a film during his summer break. He worked as a concept artist. Uh, in order to accelerate his career in film, he did work for ad agencies first, and then during that time, he began to illustrate graphic novels. Um, but this was after a move to California. And what's cool about him doing the graphic novels, though, is that, and you see it in a lot of his work, he actually was under the mentorship of Mobius. And for those of you or listening who are into fantasy, sci-fi art, especially from like the 70s and 80s, Mobius was a big name. Um, but because of his focus and his experience with Mobius, he expanded into concept, storyboard, and design. And because of his quality and attention to detail, he was in the top tier of his craft within the first 10 years. Um, what this means basically is he became internationally known and most of the projects he worked on were came with the budget of budget of over a hundred million dollars. Um, so he basically was working with like A-list actors and directors um, throughout his career. Uh, what I'd like to do now, though, is I'd like to read an excerpt from an interview with him uh, for the special effects book by Pascal Pinto. And the question that was asked is really great because I think it's something that we as movie watchers don't really think about. But it has a paramount effect on what we end up seeing. So the question is, what are the differences in the special effects between those described in the script and those that appear in the storyboards? Sylvan explains, A good director will take hold of a script and shape it to correspond with his vision. Not doing this would be a mistake, because the studio is paying him to bring his own original touch. At this stage, whole sequences are changed or dropped. The director's vision is established, and the film begins to come to life. Afterward, the budget becomes an issue, and it all turns into a narrative soup into which the special effects and the limitations are incorporated. The closer to the shooting date, the more important it is to resolve problems and make decisions to move the picture forward. If 50 special effects shots have been planned, they may be knocked down to 35 before filming starts. But often, another 90 will have to be added during post-production to correct problems that arose during the shooting. That's pretty interesting stuff indeed, I must say. Um, some of the films that Sylvan has worked on in his career are Gladiator, Alien Resurrection, and The Fifth Element. Totally see all his stuff in The Fifth Element and that whole Mobius vibe too, for real. Uh, you can check them out and you can Google his work. It's inspiring and spectacular and a great reference for aspiring concept artists and filmmakers. So as we move into the 90s, uh, you know, we start edging into the new millennium, and special effects are created by CGI, or computer-generated imagery, and this is becoming the norm. Uh, one universe that was created in the late 90s and carried into the 2000s was the Matrix trilogy by the Wachowski brothers. And part of the effects for The Matrix were acted out by the actors, 
and they wore special suits that aided the physical feats they had to pull off for the film. Um, some of these were like rubber wetsuits where they had pulleys or ropes attached, harnessed to them. Um, and that way they could be swung or pulled in different directions as they were filming to give off that effect of flying and floating and all these great sequences we saw in the final film. Um, so in essence, this seems like a practical, maybe even traditional effect, but that's until you incorporate the real world and virtual world environments. Production designer Owen Patterson was in charge of the multi-world environments in the matrix. And most of these scenes were special effects during Morpheus' escape in the first film. They used a translite, which is a slide that depicted a montage of the Sydney landscape minus some buildings. This helped the foreground settings. I'm sorry. This helped the foreground action become more visible. For Reloaded and Revolutions, over 150 different settings were utilized. Sets were built in decommissioned naval bases and traditional New York facades, and so on. And they did this by disassembling and reassembling the sets to shoot two movies in just 240 days. That's crazy. That's a feat of effect in itself, for sure. Um, but then they composited paintings of Zion into CGI. And during the filming of the first Matrix, the crew developed the process, image-based rendering. This is where all the scenery appears behind Neo in the scene where he's dodging the bullets. Um, and, and the way this was done is pretty cool. Um, the process entailed taking like multiple photos of a landscape or building and noting the actual dimensions of the buildings. So then the volume was then reconstituted in 3D and placed on top of the photos of the landscapes um, so that the virtual camera could move all around without restraint. And then this is completely realistic because it is a reconstruction of volume of the actual set. Uh, and I'm sure it's probably a little more technical, but it seems like some of these processes wouldn't be too hard to learn. Um, but over time, special effects have and will continue to evolve. And uh, as I close out this episode of the Oh Yeah Dig It podcast show, I would be remiss if I did not touch on one of the most practical, easily visible elements of special effects, makeup and prosthetics. It's probably my most favorite part because I notice it right away when I watch movies. Uh, but, again, understand that the art of special effects is a universe all its own, okay? And there are many galaxies that make it a whole. And I could be here a, a whole day talking about the different facets, but I won't. Um, and I probably, and even if I did, I still wouldn't come close to co covering them all because there's just so many things that have come over the years. Um, but instead I want to cite some really valuable resources for those who aspire for a career in special effects and for those who are simply interested. Um, so if you're looking to read some books, I would suggest special effects by Pascal Pinto, which I refer to a lot in this episode, the filmmaker's guide to visual effects, the Winston effect, the art and history of Stan Winston studio and industrial light and magic, the art of special effects. And for those of you who prefer video footage, you can find a lot on YouTube. Google Movie Magic. That was a show from like the 80s and 90s that explored films of the time and how they pulled off the effects in them. You can also learn how to do some of these effects as well on YouTube or by purchasing or subscribing to Stan Winston School of Visual Effects and Character Arts. 
And since we're in the age where podcasts dominate, there's a special effects podcast called Effectively Speaking. Give that a listen. You can learn a lot. Okay, getting back to the art and effect of special effects, makeup, and prosthetics. It could be easily said that the most famous actor to don makeup and prosthetics would probably be Lon Chaney. He was born in Colorado Springs in 1883. Uh, and it's kind of crazy because if you know who Lon Chaney is, he's you know an actor during like silent movies and black and white movies and so a lot of his mannerisms and gesticulations are, are, are you know, very dramatic and very rudimentary. But what's crazy about that is he kind of learned a lot of that growing up because that's how he communicated with his parents as they were both deaf and mute. And by being involved in the theater, he had learned how to do his own makeup and being an adaptable landed him parts almost immediately. Um, he actually carried around this makeup kit and what was in that kit was um, cotton, makeup and grease pencils, moldable wax, modeling tools, colored powders and a flask of collodion. Uh, some kind of spirit I guess he used to gum up stuff to keep get, get the prosthetics that he would make to stick maybe. Um, Cheney starred in films like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera and The Unholy Three. Uh, and Jack Pierce would be next to be mentioned as he contributed to the creation of the Universal Monsters. He worked with Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Lon Chaney Jr. on these films, and his work is still well-received to this day. Uh, his most famous makeup is the Frankenstein monster, uh, the Universal Frankenstein monster. Um, I think that would probably be like, if you're looking to understand special effects, the makeup and prosthetics, it's probably like a really good starting point is like looking at the Universal Monsters and any kind of footage or, or imagery you can see of the process of them putting that together. It's really cool. Um, jumping forward, I want to highlight three amazing artists and masters of makeup and prosthetics that I grew up knowing and seeing their work. And those three guys are Dick Smith, Rick Baker, and Stan Winston. So Stan, excuse me. <clears throat> Dick Smith had quite the prestigious career. He developed many techniques, still in use today, by the way, and he trained many people throughout the industry. Smith was first inspired to do makeup from watching the 1939 adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I don't think that was the one with Lon Chaney. He found a book on stage makeup basics and started working on his craft. He had been working for NBC between 1945 and 1959 when he was hired to do the makeup for the film Requiem for a Heavyweight, which starred Anthony Quinn. He learned the nuances of makeup during this film, and he also realized that his fear of defect in his work was actually less visible on film than it would have been on television, because he had previously believed the opposite. And some of his other work was on Marlon Brando in The Godfather, Smith created the puffy lower jowls on Brando by taking dental molds and outfitting his lower teeth with a bridge that had these bumper pads on them on each side. Um, this is how the effect of the puffy cheeks on Brando came to be. Simplistic in nature and effective. Um, another notable work for Dick Smith was De Niro's character in Taxi Driver. 
This is cool because Smith took the bald cap De Niro wore and actually used an old atomizer spray device to apply very fine chopped hair onto the bald cap. It was time consuming, but it worked. Many people on set really thought De Niro had shaved his head. And one of Smith's bigger challenges was uh, to turn the cherub-faced Linda Blair into a monster in William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Uh, one of the shining moments for Smith in The Exorcist was the scene where the phrase, help me, appears on Linda Blair's stomach. And he pulled this off um, by creating a large, thin appliance, that's what they call the prosthetics, uh, that stretched from her neck down to her crotch. Um, and, and how the raised letters came to be was he actually remembered a prank that the crew pulled on a apprentice on the wizard of Oz set. And, um, they had given him the wrong stuff to clean this like foam appliances with on the film. And so when he did, they actually had given him, uh, carbon tet, which is trichlorothylene, um, instead of the acetone. And um, when he did that, the chemical properties caused the foam rubber to expand immediately. Um, You can kind of see where this is going now. So after some initial testing, Smith filmed this process in reverse. Um, uh, He also realized that when the foam did dry, the expansion disappeared. So when the actual shooting took place, they starched Blair's clothes so they wouldn't move. And Smith had used all this up, used a paintbrush to write the words, help me on the appliance with the uh, trichlorothylene. And um, so they're shooting it and it rises up. But meanwhile, there's a heat gun above Blair uh, off camera so that the words disappeared within a minute because the heat was going on to give that effect of, um, you know, it rising up from her stomach and then going away. Yeah. Oh, and that vomit scene. Yeah, that was hot pea soup, you know, hot pea soup. But if you're looking for any more shining examples of makeup from Dick Smith, uh, you can check out his films Amadeus from 1983, Little Big Man from 1969, The Hunger, 1982, and Altered States from 1980. Moving on. One of Dick Smith's assistants on The Exorcist, who would go on to have quite an illustrious career, was Rick Baker. Baker's career took off in 1971 when he had created the costume for the octopus-like creature in the made-for-TV movie Octoman. Sounds like a hit. He also provided visual effects for James Bond's Live and Let Die, where he replaced the head of actor Jeffrey Holder as he looks up and then a bullet rips through his skull. It's a pretty badass scene, actually. Um, He also did the balloon face of Yafet Kodo. Um, And in his... His first Oscar win, that came in 82 for the Metamorphosis stage in um, An American Werewolf in London, which came out in 81. Um, And the way he pulled this off, this is kind of really cool, actually. Uh, He put a number of appliances. um, And if you keep wondering what appliances are, I'm not talking about like a dishwasher or whatever. (laughs) Appliances are like what they refer to as like the prosthetics. Could be noses, eyelids, scarring swollen jowls, stuff like that. So he put these appliances on David Naughton's face to show the beginning of his formation. And from here, he constructed three mechanical heads made of resin and fiberglass. 
and they were operated with uh, cables. Um, they were also covered with foam skin, obviously, so that they look like the actor. But the animations produced by these heads were done so by metal cables and levers, um, and some of the ac other actions were produced in the editing phase. Um, so, like when Naughton's mouth is like elongated and all that, and then it turns into the uh, snout of a wolf, that was in post-editing. Um, but as is with the magic of many effects, parts like the growing of the hair were filmed in reverse. A lot of things filmed in reverse for special effects, apparently. Um, when played back, the viewer entranced by the awe of a werewolf transformation, uh, they didn't see the parts where, like, he had plucked all the hairs in. So when, again, filmed in reverse, you see the hair growing out as, as opposed to going in, which is how he actually filmed it. Um, but Rick Baker being Rick Baker... He did himself one better, and this is my favorite movie of his, um, and it also garnered him his second Oscar, 1987's Harry and the Hendersons. And what I love about this movie, beyond its message about compassion and patience, is the realistic actions the effects crew, which was led by Baker, put into Harry's face. Um, as Baker explains, my interest in animatronics came because you couldn't transform a human face beyond a certain point. So when creating Harry, the director, William Deere, wanted him to be imposing. After all, he is a Bigfoot. Baker created an enormous head, but inside this head, he housed servo motors to animate his facial expressions. The convenience of this, though, was that servos were actually animated by Kevin Peter Hall, the actor who wore the costume and the head. And three adjusters, including Baker, were the ones who kind of controlled it. So as Hall would move around, I guess these things were kind of connected by like tape and little prongs. But so when he would move his face, Harry would move the face too. And the adjusters would see these movements and master them accordingly. So you got this like actual, I don't know gesticulation between the Bigfoot and the actors. Um, side note, Kevin Peter Hall was also the actor who replaced Jean-Claude Van Damme. Do I have your attention, Paul Schroyer? <laughs> In the Predator costume, um, when that went into a redesign phase. Um, but if you're looking to see more of Baker's work, you can find it in Men in Black, Mighty Joe Young, The Grinch, the Jim Carrey one, and Planet of the Apes, Hellboy, and The Haunted Mansion. Um, and the last master of makeup and visual effects that I must talk about is the legendary Stan Winston. Stan Winston had pursued dreams of being an actor himself, but realized, this is what I love about Stan Winston, he realized like his aspirations weren't realistic for himself, so he aligned himself with the craft of makeup art. And his influences were Dick Smith and John Chambers. Stan Winston's initial work began alongside Rick Baker, actually, on the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman in 1974. It was Rick Baker who actually taught Stan how to overlay appliances to convey aging. Um, and shortly after that, Winston worked on the 81 film Heartbeeps. Uh, that starred Andy Kaufman and Bernadette Peters. And his work was revolutionary because in this film, 
he was able to give this translucent plastic effect to their faces. Um, I guess they were supposed to be robots, maybe. I'm not too sure. I, I have not seen heart peeps, but I will. But the big turning point in Stan Winston's career was when he was contacted by James Cameron to create the chrome skull that appears through the wounds on Arnold Schwarzenegger's face in Terminator. Fun fact, Winston was actually going to do the endoskeleton that is the Terminator per a miniature, which is what Cameron wanted. But Winston thought about it and said it would be more appealing to do a life-size version of the endoskeleton. This may be where Winston got a taste for going big with everything he does. Um, and you'll find out why here in a minute. But the endoskeleton was operated by puppeteers. Servo motors controlled the neck, head, and eyes. Um, but when he returned, when Winston returned for Terminator 2, he learned the lessons from the first film. Because in the first film, the endoskeleton was very heavy, clunky, uh, because most of it was constructed with actual steel. They smartened up for T2, and they did a lot of that with fiberglass, resin, and carbon fibers, which made it a whole hell of a lot lighter. And here's something exciting. When asked how he conceived the extraterrestrial in Predator, producer Joel Silver and director John McTiernan contacted me because the monster they had used during the first part of the shooting didn't work for them. Joel showed me a painting of a Rasta warrior with dreadlocks. At the same time, I left for Japan with James Cameron to participate in a conference on aliens. When I made some drawings of the Predator in a sketch pad, Jim leans over to me and says, You know what I've always wanted to see? An extraterrestrial with mandibles. And so he did that in his sketch pad, and he liked the result. And that is how they came up with the Predator. But Winston's star in the industry shined brighter when his team created and executed the life-size dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Um, the T-Rex alone was animated by means of hydraulic jacks. The raptors were mechanical puppets controlled with cables by a team of 10 animators. The T-Rex weighed 9 tons and had a 300 horsepower force. Dude, that's ridiculous. It's a robot. I mean, it's a live action. It's a real T-Rex robot. Um, and you can see a lot of Stan Winston's work um, in the, in, in, the uh, in the following Jurassic Park movies as well. And the cool thing about Stan Winston is he actually has – he passed away, but I believe it's his son Matt – and their team of people, they've carried on his name and legacy because they have online schooling and a DVD, supplemental like DVD courses that you can take. And it's not accredited or anything, but you get to learn from the masters of filmmaking. I actually bought one myself on how to sculpt like maquettes or something um, by Simon Lee, who is like a badass when it comes to like character concept and clay sculpture. Um and I really implore anybody who is looking into a career, maybe, in special effects, to check out Stan Winston's work. Check out all the other people as well. Learn the history. Find something you like in the industry and maybe use that as a focus first. But then, you know, branch out and just 
expand and do everything you can because it's really, uh, even though everything is like computer generated today, I mean, even in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you're still using prosthetics. They're still using makeup. Some things are still like, you know, miniature models, all this stuff. It's still being utilized. You need to have certain parts. Um, and if you need any more reference for Stan Winston's work, um, you can see a lot of his work um, like in Pumpkinhead, Wrong Turn, Terminator 2 3D, um, Hellraiser, The Unseen, and I think those might be the movies he actually directed, but all the same, his special effects, his influence all throughout. And uh, I want to thank everybody again for listening, and I hope you keep on listening. This episode was a little rough. I get that. Again, some of it was on the fly. I apologize to my listeners for not having my original backup plan or my original plan work out. But like I said in the beginning, the show must go on. And the show will go on. And just a little preview for episode six. And I believe my boy, Token Drew, will be coming back to share his thoughts with me on the life, the songs, the acting career of my main man, DMX. And with that, I'll leave you with this. Nom 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 nom. Good night.